as the service was beginning, uh, Patty handed me a mint, and I put it in my mouth, and it reminded me of the story of the pastor who always timed his sermons by putting a mint in between his gum and his, uh, his teeth, and it was uh, perfectly would melt in 21 minutes, and he would then draw his sermon to a close. Well, one Sunday, he got up, and he just started preaching and preaching, preaching, never stopped. And an hour into it, he, he felt his, 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 what he thought was a mint, and he took it out, and it was a button that he had put in his mouth. I promise you, I chomped down on that mint, so uh, I don't have any way to time this particular sermon. Now, what if there was a message that if you listen to that message, that it had the power to transform your life. Would you listen to such a message? What if there was a message that if you applied what it said, it would bring new life and transformation to you? Would you apply that particular message? What if there was a message that could bring into your life a new reality that was filled with meaning, hope, and joy? Would you Really buckle into that message and live into that message. Well, I've got some good news for you this morning. I believe that there is such a message that can do all those things that I've just described. It can give you meaning and hope. It can provide for you a transformed life. It can bring you into a new reality. It's a message, though, that is kind of old. Is a message that uh, was preached many years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, as a matter of fact, and it was preached by a person called Jesus. We oftentimes talk about this message being called the Sermon on the Mount. I believe without a doubt that it is the greatest sermon ever to be preached by any human being. And today we're beginning a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we have entitled Back to, Come Back to the Future. Come back, come back to church, go back to the words of Jesus, and move into the future. I believe that this message, which will take us from now till Advent, will be a message that will be so enriching for each of us and for our church as a whole. It may be the most important sermon series that Pastor Jacqueline and I have or will ever be a part of because it's focusing on this great and powerful message by Jesus. So I encourage you to listen closely during this season as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. I want to also recommend to you a book. It's a book by James Bryan Smith, which uh, is a practical guide in helping people understand many of the things in the Sermon on the Mount. It's called The Good and Beautiful Life. Uh, if you can go online and pick that up at Amazon, or you can even call the church office, we'll be glad to order you a copy so that you could have a copy, but a great book. So I want to invite you to join now in this adventure of looking at, studying, and living into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as many of you know, uh, I come from a family of preachers. There's a lot of preachers in my family, not just in my extended family, but in my immediate family. As a matter of fact, in my immediate family, on average, we preach 10 sermons every Sunday, okay? In my immediate family, we preach 10 sermons every Sunday. And so when we get together, and Patty can testify to this, uh, we talk a lot about sermons. What did you preach on? How did it go? What was your point? Uh, and I sometimes say there wasn't any point to that particular sermon. But anyway, we, we have conversations about sermons. And, you know, being a preacher, 
and having exposure to family ministers, family members who are preachers, and, and also having a lot of colleagues who are preachers, a lot of fr- good friends, I think I know a thing or two about sermons, and I know that a good sermon has a context and a theme. So Asker says, did Jesus' sermon on the mount have a context and did it have a theme? Now, I think if you listen closely to what was just read by Becky, the Scripture lesson that we had, it gives us both the context and the theme of Jesus' message. You see, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount just after He had launched His ministry. When When He first began His ministry, Jesus went to the region that was in and around the Sea of Galilee. And while He was there... He found people who were very needy. Now, it wasn't necessary that they lacked resources. Some did, yes. But they were people who were struggling with a lot of things of life. And he knew that they needed something to help get them through. He needed, they needed something in their lives that would help them manage life. They needed something in their life that would help them live abundantly. And so in that context... Jesus began preaching about a new reality. He began proclaiming the kingdom of God. He called the people to turn to that kingdom because that kingdom was close by. Now, it's interesting, though, that Jesus didn't start His ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus began His ministry by a demonstration of what the kingdom was. He went about healing people who were sick. Now, that was a big deal in a time and place where there was very little health care. What health care was available wasn't necessarily the greatest in the world. And even what health care was available wasn't available to the average people of the land. But Jesus went about Healing people who were sick. Not only that, but there were people whose lives were, were, were controlled by forces that caused their lives to be dark and, and, and they were in bondage. And Jesus set those people free. And what he did was a demonstration of the kingdom. Now, a later follow of Jesus understood just how important that was. When he wrote to his friends at Corinth, he wrote these words. He says, The kingdom of God does not depend on talk, but on power. And that's where Jesus began. He began with a demonstration of power of the kingdom. But then he also knew that people needed to understand what this kingdom was. They needed to experience it, yes. They needed to experience his power. They needed to understand that God was truly among them. But they also needed to understand what this kingdom was like and how to live in the context of this kingdom. And so basically, the Sermon on the Mount is a message about God's kingdom. About God's kingdom. And in this message, this sermon was ministering to those people so that they could understand what God was doing in their midst and how to live out in this new reality. Now, isn't it interesting that things haven't changed that much? 
we too are a people have lots of stuff that we're carrying, and we need to hear this message and to experience its demonstration. Now, for most of us living here in our day and time, here particularly in the West in the United States, talk of a kingdom is a bit foreign to us. You see, in our world today, uh, there are some nations, 28 nations as a matter of fact, that call themselves kingdoms. But there's only three of those kingdoms where the monarch has power to run the government. All of the rest are really, most of the part, for the most part, the, the other 25 are, are primarily democratic republics that are representative governments, and the monarch basically is a figurehead with very little power. Maybe some influence, but very little political power. Now, today, if we were talking about republics and democracies, elected governments, uh, we could kind of capture that, that image much quicker. But Jesus' language was about kingdoms, about kingdoms. Now, for the people in his day and time, kingdoms made a lot of sense because they lived in a world of kingdoms. They lived in a world of empire. They knew of the emperor and the absolute power that the emperor possessed. They understood something about the succession of kings and queens and how they came to be. But for us, kingdom is a, is, is a bit different. So we have to come to a, an understanding of the kingdom. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom is at hand. Now, Matthew does something very interesting that is different from all the other gospel writers, uh, Mark, Luke, and John. He uses a term that you heard just a moment ago, or, or a phrase. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. He does, he does that some 30 times in his gospel. And sometimes he referred to it as the kingdom of God. I think there are six references to the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to understand that both those phrases, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, are identical. He's not trying to distinguish between the two, and there's two different kingdoms. They are the same kingdom. But I think one of the reasons that he used the, 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 the phrase kingdom of heaven is because he was a good religious Jew. You see, good religious Jews in that day believed that the name of God was so sacred, so holy, that no one should write it on the page or even pronounce the name of God. And so, many times when he uses kingdom of heaven, it's a way of saying kingdom of God without using the word God. But I believe Matthew had something else in mind. You see, I think Matthew had in mind that in the kingdom... Heaven has come down to earth. God's domain has invaded the earthly dimension. God is among us the place where God's will is to be done. And Jesus wrote, Jesus said, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is among us. God has invaded the earthly dimension. Let that sink in for a moment. 
The kingdom of God has come near. The Greek word that's translated come near is a fascinating word, ingenzo. It has this concept of being close, but not yet. Close, but not yet. Yes, it is here, but it's not completely here. The kingdom of God is here, but not completely. Now, sometimes I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that, so I have to use some analogies to to kind of bring that into perspective. So imagine this. Imagine you have applied for this dream job that you want, okay? And, And you go for a series of interviews, and each interview is good, and you keep doing better and better, and it seems that uh, the interviewer is very interested in you. And so finally, on the final interview, you're interviewing with the boss, and the boss says, you've got the job. But you don't start work until September 1. It's only August the 7th, so you've got a few weeks before you start your job. But, he's, but the boss says, you are now an employee of the company. I want you to go down the hallway and go to the first office on your right, and there you'll go inside, and I'm going to call down so that they will prepare you a name tag so that you'll have official name tag with the logo and everything. you really going to look good. And then you're going to go to the next office, and in that next office they're going to talk about your uh, digital needs, and they're going to assign you a, a, a laptop and an and a iPad, and you're going to take that home with you because it's, it's yours, and you're going to need it for the job that you're going to do. Uh, by the way, you'll already be put on our insurance plan, so you'll have full medical uh, coverage. And uh, uh, they will tell you what's necessary in order to get into the company and so forth. And while you are an employee, you are, but it's not really until September the 1st that you're fully an employee of that company. And that's the way it is with God's kingdom. God's kingdom has come among us, but not yet. There's something yet to come. And it's even greater than what is, but what we have tasted of is a part of that kingdom that is coming. Now, in thinking about kingdom, it's helpful for us uh, to understand that the kingdom of God is a different kind of reality. Now, it's not dark like stranger things, nor threatening like the matrix, or in danger of invasion like Avatar. But it is a reality where the fullness of God dwells, and His will is the norm. It is a new reality where the fullness of God dwells, and His will is the norm. It is the Eden of God that God has intended for human beings from the very beginning. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. One of my favorite authors, uh, theological authors, is Scott McKnight. And, And he claims that the kingdom that Jesus was talking about consisted of five parts. A king, its citizens, a reign a rule, and a land, a king. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth to reign over 
the kingdom of God. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That is his identity and position in the kingdom. Jesus is the king. A reign. Jesus has reign over the kingdom of God. He exercises power and authority in that reign. As he healed people then, cast out demons, set people free, he was exercising his reign. Today, as Jesus brings healing in our lives, as Jesus sets us free from those things that have us bound, he is exercising his authority. When he conquered death in the resurrection, he was asserting his reign. And now he unlocks God's plan for creation. He is exercising his reign. And as Jesus now stands before the Father in heaven and is our chief advocate pleading for us before the Father, he is exercising his reign, a land. This component seems to be a little bit fuzzier because when we think of land of a kingdom, land of a nation, we think of like our boundaries, our borders. You know, we've got one in the south. We've got the oceans to the east and west. We've got a boundary up north. And we think of that as, as, as our land, as the United States. But the land of the kingdom is a bit different. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Anywhere there is a follower of Jesus, that place is a part of the kingdom. And today there's hardly a place on earth that there aren't followers of Jesus. And there is the kingdom. Now, for those of you who are the accountant types, and you can count, we preachers really can't count. We can only count the three. You know, we got three points in a poem. You know, that's the way we preachers count. Musicians are a little bit better. They can count to four in general. But, uh, but, if, you, but if you've noticed, I only mentioned three things, and there's two others. There is a people, the citizens of the kingdom, and the rule of the kingdom. Those two things are what the Sermon on the Mount is about. You see, the sermon tells us who are the people in the kingdom of God and how those people are to live out their lives. And if that's all you had of the Bible... You could have a really good life in Jesus by what's there in that sermon. So over the next several months, we're going to be exploring who we are as citizens of the kingdom and how we are to live out our lives. I'm excited about that part of our journey. In the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get to it in a few weeks, Jesus gives this marvelous exhortation, and he says, Seek first the kingdom of God 
Seek first the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, and all the things, and he's given a whole list of things before that, he said, will be added unto you. Now, we like the idea of what's added unto us. But he's trying to call us to understand that we as his followers are to put priority on the kingdom of God. It is to come first in our life. And if anything else takes precedent in our lives over the kingdom of God, the kingdom begins to lose its power, its prominence, and its profit in our lives. As a matter of fact, if anything takes priority over the kingdom, we can even miss the kingdom altogether. So seek first the kingdom of God of God. Make it our first priority. And so, I encourage you, put the kingdom first. Let's seek it with all of our heart, and let's experience the fullness that God has for us.